0: Welcome back to What the HR Podcast, I'm Jesse
1: Novi, an HR business partner with C.H. Robinson. And I'm Mike Toole, HR technology consultant with SAP SuccessFactors. In this episode, we are joined by Jason Aberbook, the CEO and co-founder of LeapGen, a digital transformation company shaping the now of work. Jason will give a bit of his background in the beginning, but I want to mention a few of his accomplishments. Prior to founding LeapGen, Jason was the CEO of the Marcus Buckingham Company. In 2005, he co-founded Knowledge Infusion LLC, in which he was the CEO until it was sold to Appirio in 2012. He has held senior leadership positions in the HCM industry at companies such as Ceridian and PeopleSoft. In addition, Jason is an author and global keynote speaker. During our time with Jason, we discussed the differences between technology transitions and a digital transformation. Tune in to learn how to better design and deliver employee services that exceed the expectations of the workforce and the needs of the business. Enjoy the episode and please take time to rate and review what the HR. All right, Jason, hey, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Hey, Michael, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So as a a way of getting started, um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about about you and and, and your company and what you guys do for your clients? Wow, thanks.
2: So um, really quickly, um, it's not going to be quickly, but I'll try to do my best. LeapGen is an organization that I founded three years ago, um, basically after spending my whole career in the HR and HR technology space. So I started my career at an organization called Ceridian Corporation, which before that was called Control Data. Um, which dates me, um, really focusing on helping organizations implement and sustain uh, their payroll on a mainframe. And uh, when I first started, at Ceridian Corporation was really focused on helping organizations put in their DOS products, which once again dates me. Uh, you know, one of my uh, first stretch assignments there was to help build their Windows application which at the time was a huge deal for HR because at the time HR used to just look down and now all of a sudden they had to look up at their screen to see where their mouse was and the cursor was. And so just hit the return key or the tab key uh, to move around. I spent about eight years at Ceridian Corporation and then went on to um, join PeopleSoft. And at PeopleSoft, I did everything from implement PeopleSoft to Uh, open offices around the world to develop their global product strategy around HR and their entire ERP suite. Um, I left there in 2004 to start a company called Knowledge Infusion. And the reason we started Knowledge Infusion was to help organizations truly think about the value that HR and workforce technology can bring to their organization. Because what we saw, Michael and Jesse, is we saw so many organizations buying PeopleSoft, yet not using it to its full potential, yep. you know, or struggling along the way. So knowledge infusion was all about a way to infuse knowledge into organizations to help them leverage technology, no matter what the technology is, completely agnostic, um, you know, in a, in a, in a better way. Um, we ended up selling that company in 2012 to a company called Appirio, uh, which was a Sequoia company. Uh, stayed there till 2014, where I went on to be the CEO of a company called the Marcus Buckingham Company where we really focused on reinventing performance and strengths and thinking about new ways to help bring the best of employees and managers out at work. Uh, We sold that company at the end of 2016 to ADP, which now ADP has that embedded into their product suite. And then in 2017, um, really got the bug again to help organizations think through on a global basis the role of HR and workforce technology in the world of experience. So started with values, LEAP, the name of the company LeapGen. leap stands for love energy audacity and proof so how do you love what you do which generates energy to do the audacious and then to prove value and really over the last three years we've been helping organizations around the world think about hey let's not just focus on the tech but so let's really think about what do we need to do to get our mindset right to truly think about our audiences our journeys and then lastly once i do that then i can be successful with the tech so sure. long introduction um i realize that but uh great. you know l- big background as well written yeah. a couple books around the w- along the way um you know moved around the world a few times and uh, now joining you from uh minneapolis minnesota so uh great to be back where i was born and raised
1: absolutely yeah no great uh Great background, tons of experience, and one of the things, so I do. I want to get into what you guys are doing now, but I want to take, I want to ask a question based on what you said in your bio, and that was that after working at, I think it was PeopleSoft, you said, and then Ceridian, there was this disconnect of buying the system and getting it to do kind of what it was supposed to do, and then that's, that's where you came in and helped companies where, like what is the disconnect? Does it still exist today? And are you still helping companies with that? Like you buy this piece of technology thinking it's going to be the solution when it's really just part of the solution. Uh, what have you seen in, in that area? Yeah, it's a great question, Michael. And one of the things I'll just start with is that companies
2: think about implementing technology and forget about deploying a strategy. Right. Does that make sense? If, if yeah. all I do is implement a piece of technology that's not an, I mean, I'm meeting my goals. I'm going live with a piece of technology, but am I truly driving an outcome? Mm -hmm. And that's where we find organizations missing the boat. So they think too much about implementation, even though that's important and not enough about deployment and how do we deploy this strategy, this solution, this capability to an entire enterprise. Technology is just, small piece of it. It's the Mm -hmm. implementation. So it's really the difference in thinking between digital and technology. Technology is a small part of what makes up digital thinking in organizations, A. B, because I oftentimes start with technology instead of with a vision, I put way too much weight on the technology, Mm -hmm. way, way, way too much weight. So I'll go ahead and say, "Hey, I'm going to implement this piece of technology. I all of a sudden have this magic go live party which, you know, sorry for the commentary, I think is the stupidest thing in the world. I think it should be called the go begin party. Yeah. Because once you begin, that's what you should celebrate, not go live. Um, you know, it's really how do I start to begin and start to use this tool to drive the outcomes? Uh, and But because of that, my measures of success are, are messed up. My measures of success are really focused on going live. Instead of starting to meet my outcomes that I'm trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'd say that those are the two things, implementation versus deployment, A. And then B, really thinking that technology is not the silver bullet. Because when I think of technology as a silver bullet and it doesn't meet my goals, who do I blame? Either the vendor, (laughs) you know, or IT. Right. And oftentimes I need to blame myself. I should be blaming myself for not pushing harder on driving change on adapting, which means unlearning, and truly thinking about not doing a technology transition, but doing a true digital transformation. There's a big difference between a transition and a transformation. Mm
1: -hmm. Can can you describe a little more uh, the differences between those?
2: Yeah, so so take the word, take the, the prefix, trans. Trans means making a thorough or dramatic change. Does that make sense? Making mm-hmm. a thorough or dramatic change. So when we think about that, am I doing a technology transition, which means I'm moving, making a thorough or dramatic change from one technology to another? Mm-hmm. Or am I doing a digital transformation, which means I'm making a thorough and dramatic change into how work gets done? Okay. If, yeah. I, if my outcome is to make work different, to make work better, I need to be doing a transformation. Okay. If nope. my outcome is just a shift from one technology to another, that's a transition. And by the way, that's that sometimes works, but we have to go into it with our eyes wide open, saying, "What is it I'm trying to achieve? A transition or a transformation?" Mm-hmm. If I expect a transformation and all I do is move from one technology to another,
1: that's not going to happen. Right. That nope. That uh, very well said. I,
0: I would also. Sorry, Mike. I would also say to me, it sounds like that's a lot of leg, leg work, Jason, that organizations should really do up front prior to determining what kind of technology they want to go with. Like, what are the problems that they're experiencing? What are they trying to solve for? What, you know, what objectives are they trying to meet with their organization that they might not be meeting today because of technology or because of lack of technology or because of how they're using their existing technology? So are those things, too, that you maybe help uh, organizations think through or strategize through, as, you know, prior to making that decision?
2: Yeah, Jesse, I mean, it's a great question. And one of the things a lot of people do is once they actually start their implementation, you know, I get onto a clock the clock starts ticking. And I oftentimes get into these hard decisions, like, Hey, how many levels of approval should I have? Four or eight? Well, guess what? We have eight today. I'm never going to get Jesse's time to change it to four. So what do I do? Just pick eight. Mm -hmm. You know, I just go with the status quo. And when I go with the status quo, I usually get status quo kind of results, right? (laughs) The same kind of bottlenecks, the same kind of slow processes. So Yes. To answer your question, it needs to start up front. And a lot of the work that we do ends up being what we call phase zero work. So a lot of people do phase one, which is get into the implementation. Phase zero, how do you create the right mindset? How do you set the vision? And how do you truly think about what are the journeys, not processes, but what are the journeys that are going to make the biggest impact on the workforce? Mm -hmm. And all that stuff should start before you start implementation. You know, my favorite or my easiest analogy is, um, I was just thinking about this the other day, buying a house here in Minneapolis that we're going to do a lot of work on before we move in. You know, if all of a sudden you move in and then the people show up once you've moved in and you try to say, oh yeah, now we're got to clear you out again. That's really hard. I'm probably not going to do it. Okay. This is work that I have to do before I move in before I actually get the process of implementation started, which is why that term deployment versus implementation is so important in our space.
1: You do a lot of live talks like every week and and I see those. And and one of the recent ones you mentioned that, you know, change is not a three to five year plan anymore, um, that it's constant. So you have to, your strategy has to be, how do you create an, an agile back office so that you can constantly change. I think the example you gave was like you use a paper map in the past, right? And there's one, one route to get to where you're going. And now you have GPS with traffic control. And so there's constantly changes going on that you have to be able to navigate. Can you talk more about how does HR adopt this, this dynamic of, of change and, and what they need to be doing?
2: yeah, you know it it has to start with that mindset, Michael. It's a great, it's a great question. and and really, um, you know, so, for example, last night I did a big event in um, Indonesia. Uh, and uh, of course, I wasn't in Indonesia, but you know, now I just seemed to do events twenty four seven whereas before you couldn't do that because you had to actually go from physical place to physical place. But last night I did an event, and one of the things that was very, very important about that event, Was to help them understand that it's hard to be agile in a fragile time. Okay, agile and fragile, those two words. But that's the world we live in today. I have to be agile in fragile times. And the way to do that is to make sure that I put humanity at the core because I'm asking people to play offense and defense at the same time. Okay, you know, in a normal time where things aren't stressful. You know, going through a big system deployment or a change of a digital transformation is hard. But when all of a sudden I've got everything else going on where I'm trying to, like, keep my employees engaged, help them realize what it's like to work from home while their kids are going to school at home, you know, take all of the different issues going on in the world in 2020 that we're faced with. You know, I'm trying to say you need to be agile in a fragile time. And what that really means, Michael, is that I can't think about static strategy. You know, I can't say I'm going to create a three-year strategy because I guarantee you, Michael, Jesse, you know, you don't know where you're going to be celebrating the holidays this year and what it's going to look like, right? Like you might have an idea. So I talk a lot about, and I used to, at the start of the pandemic, I talked a lot about signals. Like you can pick up signals, you know, and we can pick up signals as far as, hey, where might I be? And what might this look like? But to put something in the ground and say, for Jesse, I'm going to spend the holidays this year in Owatonna, Minnesota, with 28 of my friends. You don't know that, yeah. And even if you that's even if that's what you wanted to do, it, you can't know that, right? I mean, it, it, we don't know that right now. You know, my business. You know, I'm using a, a lifetime fitness facility called Lifetime Work. You know, odd as people are not going to work anymore. Okay. It's Mm -hmm. eerie around here. There's no one here. Yeah. Wow, this is a huge place for people to work, yet no one's around. So all of a sudden you start to say that, but that wasn't their plan January of 2020. Yeah. Right? So we have to be able to be agile. And you know, the 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 analogy there, Michael, that you were referring to is we used to have roadmaps, you know, paper roadmaps. Uh, you know, I remember my parents holding up these big pieces of paper when we took road trips. I'm like, okay, they have to pull over. We have to pull over because we have to look at the roadmap. You know, and you know, we we've shifted from this concept of having a roadmap, which was very static. And if I didn't have a quote unquote um, uh, you know, GPS, I would use the roadmap. Second of all. I would actually, now GPS came into being. But if I didn't have the updated roadmaps with GPS, the road names, there might be a road missing. Mm -hmm. Right now, I need active traffic routing. So Jessie's driving, there's an accident ahead of her. What does Waze or Google Maps do? Reroute her. That's the world we live in today. It can't be static. It has to be very, very active. And that's a challenge. It's a big challenge for organizations that are used to planning things out over two years to now all of a sudden say, Hey, we're going to do that. We're going to start this. We're going to deliver value, but I might have to revisit it
1: in two or three months. Mm -hmm. And, and and that makes, that's crystal clear. I think anybody listening would be like that. That's, I totally understand that. How how do I take the concept and apply it within an organization? Cause like when I hear you talk about Jesse wants to go to Oatana with 28 friends and that may change so what does the new plan look like? Is it just shorter term?
2: Well, no. The, well, it is, it is shorter term, A. But B, the other thing that's really important about it is that you know, when, when we think about it, it's different. It's not, shorter. it's not just taking the same thing and compressing. It's asking us in this now of work that we're living. In this now of life that we're living, where we don't know the future of work, and we don't know the future of life, how do I make the decisions on what really matters now, mm-hmm. Michael and Jesse? Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, I used to be able to say, hey, I'm going to spend the next three years doing this because, hey, in three years, we're going to need it. You know, I don't right now. I don't even know if our company, any company is going to be around in three years. Right. You know, so we have to be focused on the now instead of the future. And mm-hmm. I think that's a key, key talking point for everyone as they start to think about how do i reprioritize my initiatives
1: yeah yep absolutely um you mentioned within that of how people are feeling right it's a we live in a human world with emotions and everything going on and companies is now you we talked a lot about experience experience matters and experience management how how does a company like what do they need to be thinking about when they do think about the experiences with their employees and then a second question to that is do organizations have to change their current i guess hierarchy or org chart to reflect the need to focus on these experiences meaning we have we have hr that focuses on tactical and then we have hr that maybe focuses on people not both yeah
2: it's a great question, and the organization, Michael, the organizational structure on this is still, it's a, it's a work in process, and it's, a, it's really based on organizations. So if we think about most HRIS organizations that we've worked with for the past 20 years, HRIS has been reactive, okay? You know, they've been, hey, you know, we're here to help, we're here to support, but it's coming to them, it's asking for a report, it's coming to them, getting a field added, it's coming to them, getting a position added. What I need right now is I need to have an organization that's focused on looking forward, keeping the lights on also, but looking forward and thinking about how do I leverage things like design thinking and adaptability to develop journeys, not processes? How do I make sure I'm deploying journeys, not modules? How do I make sure I'm embedding organizational change management into what I do, infusing it into what I do? Because... Employees are not going to adopt unless organizations adapt. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So we struggle with this constantly where people are like, oh, the employees aren't using the tool. Oh, the employees, they won't do it. The reason that they won't do it has nothing to do with the tool. Mm -hmm. I mean, they might complain a little bit that the tool is not as user friendly as they might like it to be. But the reason they're not doing it is because we haven't adapted as an organization. So an example, I roll out something called self-service and I call it self-service. First big mistake. Self-service is something that vendors package. We should call it direct access. How do I give employees and managers direct access to do their jobs better, okay? B, Jesse gets a call from someone. Jesse, I'm just gonna pick on you for a second. Jesse gets a call from someone and the person says, hey, I'm having a baby. I went to the portal and I typed in, I'm having a baby. And what did I find in most organizations, when you type in, I'm having a baby and the the search bar on a portal, you know what you find nothing, what you're looking for. (laughs) Okay. And usually what happens is if I type in, I'm having a dependent, what would I find? Oh, here's where I put in my dependent information. No one in their life ever says I'm having a dependent. You know, they say I'm having a baby. Mm -hmm. So what happens is people get frustrated and they abandon. And when they abandon what do they do? they call Jesse. So what does Jesse do? Jesse has two choices and she's the point of impact I try to help people understand this that we try to help people understand this that HR business partners are a point of impact right now and what Jesse does here is going to make or break a lot and people get really weirded out when I say that but either Jesse's going to say, "Hey Michael, here's how you do this online or Jesse's going to say, "Hey, I'll do that for you." Don't worry about it. That one moment right there decides whether your HR technology deployment is going to be successful.
1: Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah.
2: Because if Jesse does well, it for, if Jesse does it for you, Michael, what's going to happen? What's I'm going to call her. I'm going to call her
1: next time and have her do it again.
2: <laughs> yeah, and then she's going to keep doing it, and then no one's going to use the technology, and someone's going to say, "Why is no one using this?" Because of Jesse.
1: <laughs> or i'm going to call
0: or i'm going to call my hr technology team and say hey the search words or the keywords that you're using in our self-service tool are not are not resonating with our employees.
2: Now if you did that that would be brilliant. Okay? Because guess what? That falls right into this topic that i love to talk about, which is once we deploy, we have to te- treat our deployment like a pet, not like a rock. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. So Jesse just realized, hey, the dog needs to go out. I'm just using that as a weird example, but hey, guess what, the dog needs to go out. Here's an employee, Michael, not calling him a dog, couldn't find what he's looking for. So what do I do? Jesse's proactive and say, "Hey, HR technology team fix this so that going forward we don't I don't get these calls." Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't do that though. You know, they will say, "Hey, we'll wait for the next upgrade." you know, which is 18 months or two years away. And guess what happens? For two years, the behavior is trained to just call Jesse. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then people say, why is no one using this? And we end up saying, how do I get people to do a phase two or a phase three? We don't because there's no one that's using this stuff. So that's my point about the org has to adapt before we can expect people to adopt. Mm -hmm. If we continue to offer this high touch human, Service, which, by the way, and we'll talk about this concept of hands, heads and hearts, I hope, Um, you know, I don't want I don't want Jesse in her job as an HR business partner leveraging her hands. I want her in her role, leveraging her heart and leveraging her head. And if I can make sure that's the case, I'm leveraging my HR business partners to their what they're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. So many orgs still have HR business partners focused on hands work, and it's a huge waste of time and money, and we get further and further away from the workforce.
0: Well, it kind of goes back to, Jason, to that original question that I had asked about, hey, it sounds to me like this is work that needs to be done on the forefront of implementation, and it goes back to when you're thinking about the people that um, are a part of the pre-work or even the work after launch, it's usually probably HR technology people or HR leaders. And so we're using HR terminology. We're not thinking about if I'm an employee that doesn't know what STD means, short-term disability, or I don't know what FMLA means, or I've never used that term before, I'm probably not likely to go in and search family medical leave act or FMLA or short-term disability or STD. And so I also think it's about thinking like the employee, what might I search if I don't know what these terms are to help me get what I'm looking for um, as part of the search engine.
2: So Jesse, what's so important about that, that that we do with all of our organizations is we work with them on this concept of design thinking, which is being empathy-based and there's a great, a great um, idea that's u- that was created that's used by Jeff Bezos in his book, and what Jeff Jeff Bezos does at Amazon, which is called, which is simply thinking about designing for the empty chair. Okay, and in every one of your design sessions, you should have an empty chair, and that empty chair should be the employee or the manager. Okay, at Amazon, it's the customer. Okay, for, for us in HR, it should be the employee and the manager and say, hey, employee manager, do you know what an STD is? And you probably don't want to know what they say back to such a question. Yeah. Okay, But it helps you understand that, you know, hey, when you go to a search, are you more li- more than likely, here I am talking to no one, by the way, are you more than likely to say I'm having a dependent or I'm having a baby? Okay. Now, by doing that design work up front, Jesse, back to what you said, that allows me to design in a way that's going to create, and I'm going to try to be clear about this, a minimum lovable product versus this thing that we try to do so often, a minimum viable product. Mm -hmm. This concept of minimum viable products is a huge taboo in our space. That was fine when the only people that had to use it were the HR technology people or the HR people, because guess what? They'd struggle, but it's okay, because it's just HR. They'll, they'll, they'll do their usual manual heroics, and they'll get through it, okay? But when all of a sudden it's the employee and the manager, you know, the example I like to use is think about your app. Think about when you download something, right? If you ever down, have you ever downloaded an app that you don't like? Every day. Yeah. What do you, how often do you give it to see if you're, you know, if you're going to like it?
1: Two minutes. I mean, you get in there, you you get it, you delete it after a minute, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. and you know very quickly if this is going to work for you or not.
0: Maybe a day at most.
2: Maybe a day at most. And then how, if you delete it, which is what you usually do afterwards, how often do you go back and see if it gets better? Never. That's right. So think about rolling out something to your employee for the first time. That is minimum viable product. What do they say? They're like, seriously? This is what Jesse's been working on for the last year? This thing? You know, and and once again, I'm just playing, but you know, there's a lot of value in the back end. But what I didn't do is I didn't design a minimum lovable product. I, I deployed a minimum viable product or implemented a minimum viable product that we said, hey, guess what? Phase two will get better. Or guess what? Phase three will get better. And that doesn't work because you just said you're never going to go back. So it's really, really important, Jesse, just to add on to what you said about doing this upfront, but also realizing if I'm going to push this out to employees and managers, what needs to be in phase one to add value, to make it lovable.
1: And it also goes back to when you mentioned that impact zone for, and it was the example of using Jesse, right? How important it is in that moment to not do it for them, Um, or maybe even just say, go do it on your own in that app or whatever it may be, but to guide them in that moment, to make it a good experience using it, because you're right. Like that may be the first time they're using it. If it doesn't go well, they're not coming back.
2: Yeah. And, you know, and it's, you know, and then who gets blamed once again? the technology or the vendor or the business partner. I mean, so blame gets spread. And then at the end of the day, people are like, oh, time for an RFP. And then that's when they'll call us and I'll be like, what are you talking about? They're like, you know, we have this tool but no one will use it. By the way, this happens not just in basic things like direct access. People, I laugh, excuse me, I don't laugh. It's interesting all the time when people say, hey, no one's using our performance management process, so we're going to switch to a new tool. And then they'll go and implement a new tool, and they'll say, no one's using it still. Yeah. And then they'll call us and say, what's wrong? People had nothing against the tool. They had everything about the fact that they didn't find value in the process. Yeah. And right now, this is a huge problem. Right now, in September of 2020, People are right now asking, are we going to deploy the normal performance management process? The answer should be no, because it's very tone deaf. Yeah. Okay. You know, Are we going to deploy the normal engagement survey? The answer should be no, okay, because it's very tone deaf. We need to be focused on the pulse of people at the moment and thinking about how do we check in on people? not check up on people.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Okay. Humanity right now is more important than ever. And we have to be thinking about how do we check in with
1: people, not check up on people. Yep. Big, big difference in that one word. Right. So on the, um, I want to just make a a kind of a transition here, um, because I had written down a few things I want to make sure that we covered today. And one of the things is, that you've said is that we are not. You hear the war for talent all the time, right? That's that's kind of the buzzword. There's a war for talent, but you know, you would object and say that there's a war for what we do with the talent. And I thought that was a great way of putting it. I I just I want to let you talk on that subject and and learn more.
2: Well, there's always a war for the talent. So look at Jesse. I mean, Jesse's the best HR business partner in the world, right? That's right. You know, look at Michael. You're the best account executive in the world, right? There's always going to be a war for talent. There's always going to be, and by the way, it's not really a war for talent. In this case, it's a war for people, Mm -hmm. right? You know, talent, you know, is broken up into skills, abilities, but at the same time, I'm talking about Michael and Jesse, which are individual people, okay, But in the world that we're moving or that we're in right now, organizations are trying to be agile, as we talked about earlier, which means how do I best leverage talent? So our war is not just for the talent, but the war is what do we do with the talent and how do we structure our organizations? You know, there's a term that's uh, that's coming into play, um, you know, uh, that's that I like a lot. And it's called it's, it's talent resilience. We've talked about talent management forever. And you know what? Management equals control. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not, I, I, control is not really what I'm looking for right now. I'm looking for resilience. Okay. And when we think about the term resilience, one of the definitions that I love about the term resilience is that it's the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties or toughness. I need to build resilience. So what did organizations do? They had their furlough. What did organizations do? They had to lay off. What did organizations do? They need to change how they hire. They had to hire quick, which, you know, maybe they hired really quick, but now they're going to have to change that based on what happens in the world. So instead of thinking about talent management, which is putting in place controls as HR to think about, you know, how do I deal with talent issues? I want to think about how do I build resilience, talent agility and talent resilience as an organization? And one of the big ways to do that is to break the silos of what, was, what we think of as traditional talent management. So, you know, recruiters are going to say, oh yeah, we have to keep recruiting. Performance people say, well, you can't take away our performance reviews. Engagement people, we have to do the engagement survey. Comp people, no, we have to do the comp increases. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, those are little, those are molecules that make up a bigger thing that's called talent, okay? And what I want to do is move away from control and move towards agility and resilience. And and that's why, Michael, I say that I don't truly believe we're in a war for talent. Mm -hmm. I believe we're in a war for how do we use the talent, how do we buy, build, and have the talent, know what we have, and how do we make sure that we, as HR people, are not controlling the talent, but we're helping build that capability of resilience into the business.
1: Are there a few, are there some things that you work with, with your clients? Like uh, we always like to on the podcast, like what are some simple steps somebody can walk away to help build resiliency in this case? What would you- So the
2: first thing in in this case is have a talent strategy. How do you build a talent strategy, Michael? Three things. I have a job at the top and on of an axis. And on the left, I have three things or four things. Buy, build, have, outsource. So I need, all of a sudden, someone comes to me and uh, uh, Domino's Pizza comes to me. We need to hire 10,000 drivers. Excuse me. We. I shouldn't have said buy or hire. We need 10,000 drivers. Okay, now what? what's my talent strategy to go after that? Am I going to buy them? Am I going to build them? Do I already have them? Or am I going to outsource? that makes sense and if you look at yeah. domino's for example right now they're a combination of buying them plus outsourcing them they're partnering with uber to help deliver okay in this world so really cool but when you think about how do you build that in you start remember what we talked about earlier we start with a strategy we then deploy that strategy then we continue to sustain that strategy Mm-hmm. But if I just go ahead and say, oh, I need to hire, or, excuse me, I almost did it again. See, this is adaptability. I need 10,000 drivers. What's the first thing most organizations do? Let's open some recs. We need the recruiters yeah. here, right? And that's not a strategy. That's action. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's think about the strategy first that we're going to de- deploy and then think about what do we need to do from an action standpoint.
1: When you're talking about this strategy, like when you go into an organization, are you starting at the executive level or are you, I mean, I'm thinking about this if in that example, right, the executives come down and say, we we need 10,000 people and it's as a, as a talent team, our role primarily, what we view is we need to go find those people. That's what we believe we're being asked to do. So does that change have to come from the mindset of that talent acquisition team or does it have to come from the executive team? Both, both
2: the talent, acquisition, the, answer, so. the, talent, the talent acquisition team needs to think of themselves as talent stewards, not talent acquirers, mm-hmm. A, and then B, the executives sh- can't go and say, we need to hire 10,000 people. The executives need to come and say, we have, here's our challenge. Now you as experts within talent, how are we going to deal with that? Yeah. Now, that is a bigger problem, by the way, that requires your executives to see HR as a strategic function and not a transactional function. Right. And the only way we do that is through actions. So continue to show the action over time as to how do we build and show that we're strategic versus just transactional.
1: Yeah. What were the four? It was, do we have it? buy,
2: buy, oh, it. buy It's it's yeah, simple. Buy, build, have outsource. It's, you know, it's 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 really you know it's you know oddly enough, no surprise, it's supply chain one oh one. Yeah, you know, if, you know, only this time we're talking about the people chain, one oh one.
1: Yeah, you know? if, if you're listening, and you're in talent acquisition. Buy, build, have, outsource. Yep, write that down. I, I I love that because to me that seems like that's where you start any time a request comes in or, or any initiative comes, you know, to the forefront, right? If, if, if that's where you start, it just facilitates a really solid conversation and probably elevates that team um, in the eyes of the executives as well.
2: Well, and Michael, one of the things, if I could, that's really interesting about that point is, you know, that if you, the buy one, you know, you said all of our friends in talent acquisition, let's talk about the build, right? So a lot of people are talking about upskilling and reskilling talent.
1: Good point. Yeah.
2: You know, that's build. And, the question becomes how often, how how quickly do we need these people? You know, and the other thing that's fascinating about that equation, Michael, is the have. Okay. There's so many organizations that don't even know what talent they have. Yeah. Okay. So when we say buy, build, have outsource, you know, it's really saying, okay, I might have to buy, but I could build as I think about planning for the future. I might already have it. I just don't know that I have it because I've got this talent profile that doesn't work for the reasons, many reasons, or or I'm going to outsource. And I think the thing that's most important is that we think about what's going to be most effective and efficient for the company, for the organization long-term. And you might say, Hey, for three months, I'm going to outsource. But then during that time, I'm going to build. Right. Okay. So that I can then, you know, use what the talent that I already have. But that requires strategy, and we can't just jump right to execution.
0: Yeah. Jesse. Yeah, I was just thinking about sort of like in a talent assessment piece there of, of the existing talent that you have. What are they busy doing, and are they busy? Because I don't oftentimes think those questions are asked. I mean, you could have talent that are sitting and twiddling their thumbs like, hey, I'm looking for more. I want to be challenged. I'd like some experience over in this area. And if we're just assuming as leaders of the business that all of our talent are at capacity or happy doing what they're doing, then we'll never answer those questions. And we'll always probably resort to wanting to hire or feeling like we need to hire. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, and talent resilience, Michael is, a, and Jesse is a is an enterprise wide concept. It's not a, you know, it requires us to teach our managers to build this concept into the way that they lead people. Now, Michael, sorry. Yeah. So Jesse, I love the fact that you threw that in. You know how you do that? Now, so there's two ways to do this. And this is really fascinating to me. One way to do this is for HR to try to do this thing called talent management, where I'm going to do a survey and I'm going to do an assessment. I'm going to say, Hey, what do my people know? What are they good at? Let's collect all this data. Let's spend six months. Let's hope they're telling the truth. Let's hope that their managers don't tell them to lie on it Mm -hmm. because they don't want them poached, et cetera, et cetera. Or, I can build the culture from the top down that says I, as a leader, my job is to build connection with my people. Okay. It's a key, key concept right now in this space that I need my managers and leaders, not just focusing on being connected to people, but building connection Mm -hmm. with people. And if I'm building connection with people and I, and they trust me that I'm checking in on them, not checking up on them. Guess what? I'm going to be able to get that data, Jesse, to use for what you just said. But if I use traditional HR practices, like let's have everyone do a survey or have everyone do an assessment, you know, and then for the most part, once I have them do the assessment, I don't do anything with the data. So I'm listening, but not acting Mm -hmm. is what that equates to. Guess what? They're like, this is stupid. Why am I going to fill out my talent assessment?
0: Yeah. Yeah, Well, you had made a comment earlier and this could be a a podcast episode all in of itself, but is I feel like I need to do mid year reviews and year end reviews. And you know, one of the things that I have always preached, no matter where I've worked at as an HR professional, is regular connection, regular one-on-ones, connecting frequently, know your employee knowing when, they're, when they expect to hear from you as a leader is really important in creating that connection and being really consistent with it. And I'll get feedback sometimes like, I connect with my people on the floor all the time or I'm constantly coaching I'm constantly giving feedback. Well, that's different. I mean, that's important, but that's different than sitting down weekly, every other week, maybe monthly at minimum to just say, how are you doing? What's your workload like? Let's check in on your personal development plan. Like even just connecting with them on a personal level. How's how's your family? How's life? Those are those are the times when you're making that connection and you're getting information out of your employees that you probably wouldn't get otherwise.
1: Yep. Is that, um, Jason, does your mind go to What are you, what are you working on and how can I help? I mean,
2: my mind, my mind goes to that, but it also goes into this concept of the way that I like to think about what Jesse just said is that this is the next gen of employee experience. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So right now people think of employee experience as a new user interface and it's way too shallow. Yeah. It's way, way too shallow. What I'm trying to do with an employee experience is build those connections. And yes, Michael, it does go to those questions, but you know it goes to the concepts of I'm checking in with people, not mm-hmm. checking up on them. And that's the employee experience of 2020. Yeah. The employee experience of 2020, a piece of it is the digital and the technology piece, but a bigger piece of it is the humanity piece. Mm-hmm. If you combine those two together, that makes up the new age of experience.
1: hmm it's it's so hard. I think I put myself in in HR shoes, and you know I hear conversations like this, and I think, man, I I've been working on what you guys told me to change in 2019, and I feel like I'm getting there now. Now the you know the goalposts moved, and you know it everything changes so rapidly. How when you talk to your clients or just in general to to an audience, what are the what do you want them working on, and and how do they stay focused on a kind of a single outcome versus pivoting at every, every year when something new comes out. So it's, to me, it's
2: all about alignment, Michael, they have to stay aligned. So, you know, you know, there's a quote that says today is the, the slowest pace of change in the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which scares some people to death. Yeah. But so what do I do? Like if, if tomorrow, you know, we're, we're all in Minneapolis doing this, right where our weather goes from 80 degrees to 50 degrees, or you know it can go from snow to hot. What do I do? I adjust, right? I, I stay aligned, so I'm aligned with the weather, right? So as, as, as HR functions, as technology functions, we have to stay aligned. And there are gonna be times that things don't change that rapidly, right? But there are gonna be other times where things do change, rapidly and we have to have what I like to call an anti-fragile foundation to be able to adjust when those things change. Like Mm -hmm. you know, let's say in Jesse's company or Michael in your company or my company, we acquire a group of people. Right? If I've got a great foundation, how easy is it to acquire people? It's awesome. If I have a bad foundation, bad data, yeah, bad governance, bad processes, it's really hard. So we all have to make sure we have this anti-fragile foundation. And once I do that, it makes it much easier to take these like turns, these pivots. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, but if everything, if like, I mean, let's say that I'm in a situation where, hey, if I'm gonna change my org structure because I do an acquisition, it's gonna take nine months for IT to code the system to adjust to it. But like, that's, that's fragile. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's very, very fragile. And you're going to spend all your time doing that instead of helping the new employees feel like they're part of your organization. Mm -hmm. And that's what we can't do. We have to have that foundation. So, Michael, my preach is you know, hey, how do we focus on both the defense, which is the foundation, but the offense, which is how do I stay aligned to the business as it goes through these? changes that right now we're at a pace where it's hyper change
1: mm-hmm. yep i couldn't t- agree more that's well said so i i do want to uh i want to give you an opportunity you said in the beginning we talked about uh was it heart hand and head and you said i want i was am hoping we could talk about that i know that we're uh we're you know getting towards the end of the the show here but um do you, can you take a moment to to speak to yeah. that
2: so where you know, whenever I used to travel around the world and speak, which I will do again someday, um, now I just travel via Zoom and speak. One of the common questions people asked me in kind of open forums, and sometimes they would ask in public, but oftentimes they didn't. And I always thought it was curious. Is they'd say, "When are my when are machines going to replace people?" It was one of the most common questions. Sure. And it always like I'd get on the plane to do an 18-hour flight or a 16-hour flight back. And I was like, why do people keep asking me this? You know, and you know, and I think there was some fear truly in people's heads that, like, hey, everyone's talking about robotics and everyone's talking about all of this stuff, and which by the way, we've been talking about forever. So I, I tried to break it down into what are, how, you know, let's not focus on when machines are going to replace people, but let's think about based on the dynamic world we live in, how machines and people should best work together. Does that make sense? So how machines and people can best work together. Mm -hmm. And I like to use, I mean, I I look at this stuff all day long. I went to Target last night. Okay. And I saw the line for the self checkout was longer than the line for the human checkout. Which was cool, fine. But when we think about that, you know, and so the machine did everything without a target employee actually doing anything. And by the way, I, I stood in the line also for whatever reason, just maybe I'm an introvert that way, but I stood in the line. And what was fascinating right now is that right when I finished, what happened? A human came up and cleaned the area that I was working in. Yeah. So in that case, what did people do? People were really good at the the kind of the, the stuff that was uh, variable, but the stuff that was repeatable, auditable, and documented, which I call RAD, we call RAD, that could be done by the machine. So I scan, it shows up. I scan, it shows up. I scan, it shows up. And I've made the user interface or the experience simple enough where, hey, when I put the bananas down and the barcode doesn't work, guess what? I can look at this big picture, banana, and it says how many. I say three. I'm like, hey, any chimpanzee can figure (laughs) out how this thing works. So but that concept of how do people and machines work together is key. And what I want my HR business partners to be and what I want my HR leaders to be is I don't want them doing hands work. I want them doing the heart's work, building the connection to the employees, building the connection to the business helping them through those talent strategies, helping them stay aligned. And if I can do that, if I can use machines for what machines are designed for right now and what they're great at is the hands work. I personally fall in the camp where I don't believe machines are ever going to replace hearts. Mm -hmm. At least not in my time. And probably not in
1: me. Hard to imagine. older than you guys,
2: but not in our time. Where, oh, a machine's going to be more empathetic than sitting down and having a one-on-one with Jesse. It, it's just not that won't happen in our lifetime. Yeah. Now, machines are getting better at the head's work, but what they suck at is storytelling. So I can give Jesse data all day long, but I can't as a machine take that data and tell a story to Jesse's leaders that that are relevant to mm-hmm. her leaders in a way that makes sense. So yeah. that's where that concept comes into play, Michael, is let, let's get the machines, the systems doing the hands work, but the heads and the hearts work. Let's make sure our people are tied to that. And that, by the way, that scares people too. Because yeah. there are business partners, Jesse, sorry, I'm not talking about you specifically, who get their value from doing hands work. They're like, hey, if I just do it for people, that's adding value. And it might be in certain companies, mm-hmm. but most organizations are not going to get a ton of new heads, you know, and one of the things I talk about is let's not do more with less, but let's do right with less. Yeah. And doing right with less is thinking about where machines and people can work
1: together. A a profession that pops into my head when we talk about that is uh, going to the doctor, right? They're using machines and all these things. Doctors aren't necessarily taking samples, running blood work. They're the ones though, that are delivering news you know, they're the ones that have the empathy. I would hate to have a machine pop up and tell me something horrible that um, yep. diagnostic, diagnostic test ran. So um, I, that just came to mind. So that was- I mean, you could do it in
2: every aspect of our life, oddly enough, Michael.
1: But yeah. there's, that, there's that same thing about, and, and really
2: what this is saying is, do I want, and this goes back to experience, is my goal as a company to deliver a high touch digital experience for these capabilities? Or a high-touch human experience. So what you need to do is you need to take your catalog of capabilities that you deliver as a function and say, hey, do we, as an organization, want to deliver in a high-touch digital way or do we want to deliver in a high-touch human way?
1: Mm-hmm. Is there a right way? No. Okay.
2: That's the magic. What <laughs> you just said, That's the, ma- the the magic is it's your way. Yeah. OK, it has to be tied to your organization, your culture, where you're at, where you're going, the, the type of persona that you have from a workforce standpoint, how they will work. Mm-hmm. OK, how much change is going to be needed to get them there. So, no, there is no right way. There's your way. Absolutely.
1: Well, this this has been great. I, I want to give an opportunity for you to tell our listeners how they can connect with you. Jason, whether it's social media or also with your company, how, how can oh, people get you with
2: know, know you? Yeah, Michael, thanks. I mean, you know, the best way to find me is on LinkedIn. Um, yeah. It's just my name, Jason Averbrook, not Averbrook, uh, but Averbook, A-V-E-R-B-O, okay. That's the best way to find me. And we, you know, Michael, you know this, we do, we do a live digital meetup every Friday where we just talk about human issues. Um, you'll see that on my LinkedIn and the information to get that. Um, You know, we probably do two or three different events a week where we're trying to build and give back to the community around this. And then, you know, for organizations that do need help, you know, we don't really consider ourselves a consulting organization. We think of ourselves as a coaching and advisory based organization Mm -hmm. where, you know, consultants do. Coaches and advisors teach and help organizations get better. Um, And that's really where we're focused is how do we think about this new world of digital to advise organizations on how to move forward into the future, mm-hmm. which is now.
1: That's great. And I'm going to put the the links to those weekly meetups uh, in the show notes. So if you're listening, you can also find it there. Well, Jason, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. And as always, we, we appreciate your time.
0: Yeah, yeah no, it's been so great.
2: Much. Yeah, Jesse, thanks so much. And anytime, I'd love to do this again with you guys. Um, so Anytime that you want to do it again, you know we're all in Minneapolis now uh, maybe we could do it live um, but maybe we can just keep doing it like this. that would feel weird
1: now it's getting to a point where that would feel weird isn't isn't that? <laughs> yes, exactly
2: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly. We'll see where that all ends
1: up but well, uh, we, to we would love yeah, we'd love to have you back. Thank you so much Thanks a lot you guys take care.
0: take okay. care Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcshirm.org. That's podcast at tcshrm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin Cities Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin Cities Sherm, please use code WHATTHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.